Most, if not all of you, have probably heard our gospel reading for the day many times before, but just in case, will you stand for the reading of the gospel? Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down to Jerusalem from Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The man said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Rough-hewn old social activist and Southern Baptist preacher Clarence Jordan was once asked to define a parable. And he replied, when Jesus told a parable, he lit a stick of dynamite and covered it with a story. Okay, children, this is a Bible school sermon, okay? So say it after me. When Jesus told a parable, when Jesus told a parable he, lit a he lit a stick of dynamite and covered it with a story. Very good job. Stars for the day for all of you. Now, I'll be honest, I've heard more scholarly definitions of a parable, but I'm not sure I've ever heard a better one. That's what a parable is, you know. It's what a parable does. A parable of Jesus performs its intended mission by surprise. Here's a nice little story, sort of like Jesus says. Just relax, everything's fine. Standard plot, familiar cast of stock characters, predictable language. Jesus is just going along with something that just almost soothes you right to sleep when suddenly, boom! Some odd little subversive element explodes as Jesus tries what? To shatter some pious illusion you have about religion? Undermine shallow or narrow expectations of God? Explode your prejudices? Subvert your self-righteousness? Whatever it is he's trying to explode, that is how a Jesus parable works. And I know, I know that that alone may be shocking to some of you, maybe even offensive to overly pious Christians. Nonetheless, Jordan's definition is unreservedly 
apt. When Jesus told a parable, he lit a stick of dynamite and covered it with a story. Which leads, of course, to the challenge before me today. Most of you know this parable so well you can hardly hear it anymore. Much less be shocked, as Jesus' first audience surely must have been, shocked to find the good guys, pious temple professionals, turning out to be the bad guys, and a half-breed heretic Samaritan turning out to be the good guy. By the time most of you heard the beginning verses of this gospel text, you had already anticipated its shock element, grabbed the stick of dynamite, pulled the liquid safely away with time to spare. Because fact is, we've all had plenty of time to tame this parable down, to sand off its rough edges for safer handling. We have rationalized it, prepared our list of excuses for Jesus, well, we even know Jesus' answer to the lawyer's question before he tells the parable to back it up. What must we do to inherit eternal life? Oh, be nice, believe in Jesus, and he'll take care of the rest. Ready to do brunch? But don't get too excited yet. The eggs Benedict may have to get cold today because we're going to listen again to what the lawyer asked Jesus. His question is a do question, not what must I believe, but what must I do. That is what he asked Jesus. This lawyer has apparently never heard the sinner's prayer, and maybe I know why. He's a Jew, like Jesus. He's been raised on Torah, which is all about not only how to think, but how to live. Living along with thinking, they always seem to go together in Jewish thought and law. He wants Jesus to tell him in plain language what kind of life he must be living right now in order to live in God's presence forevermore. And Jesus and the lawyer do know what's written in the law. Both of them do. What do you read there? Jesus asked in good rabbinical fashion, question for a question. And it's interesting to me, that here in Luke's gospel, the lawyer himself gives the answer that Jesus himself gives in Mark's gospel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, says the lawyer. And, he adds, your neighbor as yourself. Now, I find that interesting, too. It's, it's an inventive reply, not merely a legal one, not merely one you memorized in Bible school, but one that you've given some thought to, suggesting that the lawyer has both thought it through and feels it maybe somewhere in his gut, too. Suddenly, he's not just quoting the law, but he's extrapolating meaning from what the law says. He's making the connection that one might not automatically make. Because what he does is take two pieces of Torah from two different places, clips them out, scotch tapes them together, puts them on his computer monitor, because he has somehow deemed the two inseparable. You can't love God without loving people, and you can't really love people without loving God. And so Jesus likes his answer very, very much. You know I said something almost exactly like that in Mark's gospel. You've given the right answer, he tells him. Do this. Now do it, and you'll live. 
Apparently, right answers, marvelous as they may, may be, aren't enough. Alone, they weigh only about as much as the breath it takes to expel them. Like helium balloons, they come out of the mouth, but they float away, leaving no footprints anywhere on the ground. I mean, think about it, or don't think so much, but think about it anyway. A right answer has never held and comforted a frightened child. A right answer has never put an ice chip in the mouth of a dying friend. A right answer has never written a check to the United Methodist Committee on Relief or pried up rotting linoleum from a flood-ravaged home. A right answer has never appeared at the polls to vote on Election Day or taken to the streets in protest. It can make you wonder why religious people spend so much time arguing about right answers when the truth is a right answer alone never changed a thing. Oh, I think I just answered my own question. Maybe that's why religious people prefer believing and arguing about what they believe because nothing ever has to change. You've given the right answer, Jesus tells the lawyer. What must I do? What must you do? Do this, and you will live. Do love. Don't just think love. Say love. Have faith in love. Or simply believe that God is love. Give up the idea that your ideas can save you. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with understanding and knowing the right words and rules. They can help us in knowing how to do the right things. It's just that your knowledge must bring those words to life by giving them your own flesh. Put them into practice. Do love God and your, and your neighbor. That is when you'll know the life for which you yearn. Well now, perhaps this much-told, well-known old chestnut of a parable is more explosive for us than we knew. This kind of preaching, for instance, frankly, doesn't sit well with Protestants. It's upsetting to those of us who have been taught from birth that we are saved by faith alone. But now here you have it, right here in the Bible, we claim to believe whether we act on it or not. Maybe we'll just have to accept the fact first that Jesus wasn't a very good Protestant. Neither was the lawyer, who is now rethinking his answer in light of Jesus' response to it. I mean, he's still okay with the love God part, but now Jesus is complicating things. Your neighbor as yourself, I said that out of my own lips, but what does that mean? It's beginning to sound a little dicey. And so wishing to justify himself, says Luke, the lawyer pressed Jesus for clarification. Okay, Jesus, but just then, who is my neighbor? Does it stop with the people in the brick bungalow across the street? Or does it mean everyone in my postal code? Does it mean everyone that I can think of in my experience? Does it mean everyone in the world, whether I know them or not? Come on, Jesus, help me out here a little. Isn't there some place I can draw a line, set a limit, have a border? Isn't there someone I can leave out? And that's when Jesus chooses to tell the parable. When Jesus told the parable, he lit a stick of dynamite, 
and he covered it with a story. Ah, but you've already heard this one, haven't you? You've heard it a million times, a million and one, counting today. And that is why I won't tell the whole thing over again, but please note this, that everyone in this parable saved the half-dead man in the ditch. Everyone else belongs to an identifiable subculture. The priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan are all referred to by the names of their respective groups. They are set apart from each other by profession, tribe, class, and or ideology. We know that the Levite is a little lower than the priest in the Jerusalem temple hierarchy. We know that the Samaritan is at odds with all Jews everywhere thanks to a centuries-long hostility between Jews and Samaritans that ran both ways. We know that even the innkeeper, in a very real way, belongs to a subgroup that sets him apart from the others. Now, we're not supposed to talk about things like this in church, but here it is, because I'm retired. <laughs> in a culture that highly regarded strict rules and cleanliness laws, the only people who stayed in inns were unclean, outcast people who were there because no family of their own would take them in and no friends would have them close anymore for some reason. And because they have done whatever it is they have done, they don't have any place to stay where they know the people who own the house. So they have to rent beds instead, nasty beds where it's best not to think about who did what in yours the night before. And by changing the paying guest linens and emptying their chamber pots, the innkeeper sinks even lower on the status, on the status totem than they. He is the uncleanest of the ritually unclean, more so than anyone else in the whole story where everyone's place is known and everyone knows his place. Every, only the man in the ditch is a cipher. He can't talk, so we don't know what language he speaks. He isn't dressed, so we don't know what nationality he is. He isn't identified with any group, so we don't know where his loyalties lie. All we know is that he's been robbed, stripped, beaten, and left for dead and that he's the only person in the story with whom everyone else in the story has contact, sort of. Yes, only two make actual physical contact with him. But even the other two react to the man by keeping their wide distance from him. Why? Well, maybe the reasons range from their wish to maintain ritual purity to their fear that the man in the ditch may be a robber himself, setting a trap for them. But please note this, regardless of how many pontificating pulpiteers waste your time filling you in on the reason for their notorious wide detour, Jesus doesn't care. Whatever they say, they know or believe or have faith or rely on, this is what they actually do. They avoid the wounded man. You can hit the mute button and watch how much good right answers alone do. Now, of course, to be fair and in the interest of full disclosure, the Samaritan, too, belongs to a subgroup that has its assumed right answers about how to read Torah rightly, not like the Jews about where God is worshipped truly, 
not in Jerusalem temple, about how true bearers of the true faith really are not like the Jews. But once again, right answers don't show up in this story. Only right actions do. And that is where the Samaritan shines. Okay, Bible school children, are you ready to work with me again? You know how to count, don't you? One, two, three, know how to do that? I'm going to read a, a summary of the things that are done by the Good Samaritan in the parable. And every time I come to a verb, I'm going to point to you and I want you to say the next number. He comes near the man, sees him, is moved by him, goes to him, bandages his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. He puts the man on his animal, brings him to an inn, takes care of him, takes money out of his pocket, gives it to the innkeeper, asks the innkeeper to take care of the half-dead man, saying that he will come back and repay whatever more the innkeeper spends. 16, a whopping 16 verbs for a Samaritan in whom God's word becomes flesh. And for me, it raises a question. Does God count verbs? Lord, I hope not. But frankly, even though it doesn't sound like something God would do, it's still hard to get around the suggestion that here, God does care about what we do with each other's bodies, about how we treat each other's bodies and that any right answers about divine reality that do not translate into bodily care for one's neighbor is of limited interest to God. Moreover, there is only one verb in this story that links to all the rest. One verb from which all the other verbs flow. One thing the Samaritan does that sets him apart from his two predecessors who passed by on the other side so that everything else can happen. You remember what it was? The Samaritan came near. If there are moral or physical dangers involved, the Samaritan ignores them. If there are ancient hostilities between their people, the Samaritan disregards them. If he and the man in the ditch are so far apart theologically that the minute the man comes to, they begin arguing about religion, the Samaritan figures, well, we'll just deal with that when and if we get there. All that matters now is to come near the man, which is precisely what puts the Samaritan in the half-dead man's neighborhood. So, says Jesus, which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. Ah, but who am I trying to fool? I can't surprise any of you wised up Protestant Bible lovers. You already knew the answer to the question before Jesus asked it, or I ask it again for him. 
But if you too wish to know what you must do to inherit eternal life, then the right answer becomes flesh right here. Come near. Now that shouldn't surprise you either. You're Christians, right? Aren't you always saying that that's what God did in Jesus Christ? Come near, God in flesh, pitching his tent right next door to ours. Jesus Christ so wonderfully, uncomfortably, so dangerously near. Do you really want to know how to get to the kingdom of God? Be a person who comes near. And when you do, the kingdom of God will reveal itself to you. After all, it's been God's specialty act all along, right? The act from which all other verbs flow, coming near. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? The kingdom of God. Not so much a place as an action. Not so much a noun as a verb. Coming near. Standard Christian practice, as biblical as fasting or prayer, come near. And when you do, you will be able to see who your neighbor truly is. Throw your body into it. And you may find that your burning question about eternal life is not so hot after all. Because the minute God's word becomes flesh in you, Heaven is where you already are. And relax, you panicky Protestants. You didn't really earn or deserve it. It's just that whenever you draw near to your neighbor, God is already there. Where, you ask? Where did we see you, Jesus? Well, there. Already kneeling, attending to the wounded ones. Or, uh-oh, there, himself robbed, stripped, beaten, left to die in a ditch, or on a cross, waiting for you to come near. Boom!